Hello and welcome to this LSE online event hosted by the European Institute. My name is Waltraud Scheltle. I'm a professor in political economy at the LSE's European Institute. I'm very pleased to be chairing this event today and pleased to welcome our panel. The speakers are in, in alphabetical order, Dr. Sebastian Diesner. He's at the moment a Max Weber Fellow at the European Insti University Institute, and he did a PhD uh, at the European Institute in the ECB during the, on the ECB during the crisis. Dr. Corrado Machiarelli, he's a principal economist at the National Institute of Economic and Social Research, NIESR, um, and he's a senior visiting fellow at the European Institute. Mara Monti, she's a visiting fellow at our institute. And then finally, Professor Claudia Wiesner, she's a professor for political science at the Fulda University of Applied Sciences and not a fellow at the European Institute. Last but not least, Professor Ewald Nowotny, uh, a well-known uh, economist at, in Austria, a former governor of Austria Central Bank, the Österreichische Nationalbank, and in that role, he has been member at, of the European Central Bank's Governing Council for many years. For those of you who are Twitter users uh, in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSECB, so two E's and all one uh, acronym, LSEECB. This online event is being uh, recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast subject to no di technical difficulties. As usually, as usual, there will be uh, the chance for you to put your questions in the, to the panel. To submit your questions, please use the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be submitted to myself and I will pose as many as possible to the speakers. Please let us know your name and affiliation when you do so. Now, I'm delighted to hand over to our speakers to present their new book, The European Central Bank Between the Financial Crisis and Populisms. And the first uh, uh, speaker will be Corrado Machiarelli, who will introduce the, the, paper to, uh, the book to us for about 10 minutes. We will have a comment from Ewald Novotny, who has read the book very closely for 10 minutes. Then we have among ourselves for about 20 minutes a discussion that I will monitor and then we give you the floor for 40 minutes of Q&A. So the floor is yours, Corrado. Um, so thanks very much, Walter, for the um, very kind introduction. Um, <clears throat> so I'll um, be presenting the um, some thoughts around the book um, on behalf of uh, my co-authors. So of course, this is a joint work uh, with Mara, Monty, Claudia Wiesner and Sebastian Wiesner. Um, so just to um, briefly um, have a look at the um, outline for today. Um, so in the next 10 minutes, we're gonna um, quickly um, discuss about the ECB monetary rules and the um, so-called long shadow of the financial crisis and uh, moving on to the uh, challenges uh, of uh, the EMU multi-level governance uh, as a result of the crisis. And then uh, we're going to look at the context of, um, sort of popularity, protest, and, and populist crisis, which is also the context uh, in which we uh, started to think about the book itself. And finally, we will um, sort narrow down with some um, thoughts about the legitimacy of the ECB 
and of course, future challenges uh, in the light of uh, COVID-19, which is under everyone's eyes. Um, of course, very happy to take those uh, arguments further during the Q&A. Now, um, if one looks at the um, last 10 years, which is roughly <coughs> the uh, focus of the book, so starting from the financial crisis, but even more so uh, with the sovereign debt crisis, which is truly understood as a European a crisis, um, that crisis um, underscores the um, issue of incompleteness uh, of, the, of the EMU in the sense that while the monetary sort of lag, the monetary part of the, of the EMU was quite strong and, and well-developed, uh, there were a lot of um, issues on the economic side. And uh, clearly the, 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 the crisis exposed those, uh, those uh, limits. Um, also, if one looks at the um, ability of the ECB to um, affect markets and achieve uh, its um, inflation uh, target, as well as uh, looking at Eurobarometer data, one could see that um, in the first <coughs> decade, uh, roughly, uh, of the EMU, there was a lot of um, general consensus that that was and the EMU project itself was a good idea, and um, the um, you know ECB was successful in um, you know transmitting the, the the monetary policy impulses to to the market. Now, uh, with the uh, sovereign debt crisis in particular, we have observed um, a backslash against uh, central bank independence. But uh, of course, it is worth highlighting the fact that uh, this back slash is not um, a feature which is unique to the euro area itself, uh, but we have observed also attacks uh, on uh, central banks um, from uh, other governments, uh, other than European, such as in the US or in some Central Eastern European countries, uh, such as Hungary. So um, clearly that sets the, the, you know, the context in which we had uh, to, to think about this book. Um, so. On the one hand, um, the all response of the ECB during the crisis um, has been quite comprehensive and it's changed quite a lot. But one feature that uh, it's interesting in thinking about those issues is that the markets have always been ready to test the limits of these um, of those measures, in the sense that uh, the different measures that the ECB has put in place had, by definition, to be both limited in scope and in duration, and that was mainly to address moral hazard concerns. But nevertheless, those limits were always tested, as um, I'm, I'm sure we will be able to uh, elucidate further. Um, on the other hand, politics uh, got in the way. And what do I mean, what do we mean by politics um, got in the way? So here <clears throat> we look at the trust index in European institutions, just to give you a grasp of, of, of what really happened. So this trust index is built on Eurobarometer data and measures essentially the net trust that uh, single European institutions enjoy. So here in this chart, you have the European Parliament, the European Commission and the European Central Bank. And you can see that clearly the 2010 crisis, sovereign debt crisis was a, a very bad uh, hit to that trust. But um, somehow the ECB seemed to have suffered the, the most uh, um, from the loss of trust. And that's really what the book um, revolves uh, on. Um, so <clears throat> talking about the politics getting in the way, um, 
I think one of the two um, things that I would highlight here is that the ECB certainly had a very complex role during the crisis. But um, on the one hand, um, the ECB monetary policy just was pushed into non-conventional territory, meaning that they uh, stretched the existing, um, the limits of the existing measures. Um, but on the other hand, there was also um, a dimension in which the ECB participated in um, third institutions, um, which really represented a, a very strong step in the direction of politics. The, the most um, obvious example being the ECB participation in the Troika. So in both those two dimensions, um, one could highlight the fact that there, there was a um, sort of tension with politics. As far as non-conventional monetary policy is concerned, clearly there was a tendency of national governments to offload any cost of adjustment to monetary policy, so uh, exempting themselves from the use of fiscal policy. But on the other hand, uh, when we think about the ECB participation in the Troika, one could really see how the ECB was um, somehow trapped in a fiscal dominance game because it was sitting um, um, on one side of the table asking measures uh, that were uh, clearly in contrast with uh, ECB um, sort of um, goal of achieving uh, uh, price stability. And that is because many of the adjustments that were imposed uh, were, by definition, um, uh, sort of deflationary. And that didn't represent certainly a problem for a country such as Greece, that was 3% of GDP at the time, but it could have represented a problem in principle if the country in question would have been a larger country such as Italy or France. But um, So clearly what <clears throat> we will argue and that we argue extensively in the book is that there wasn't really a tension between interventionism and independence. So the ECB was quite good in designing those measures in a way to separate the different channels of intervention. So there was this so-called separation principle, but there was nevertheless a problem of legitimacy. And um, so the, the, the problem of legitimacy arise um, not only, but um, largely in the context of the ECB participation in um, in the Troika. And that was essentially because the Troika became a, an independent body that essentially had its way into national budgetary policies. So the um, um, national parliaments were somehow uh, deprived from their um, you know, natural role of, of um, voting budgets. And um, <clears throat> that is, um, we, you know, argue, but I'm not going to give you know, a definite answer here, but um, one thing that we argue is that clearly that um, uh, poor economic performance and um, you know, crisis of legitimacy um, as well as accountability tended to go hand in hand. And in a sense, the ECB, um, which was one of the most active actors during the crisis, found itself um, exposed to what was really a vacuum at the institutional level uh, in the European Monetary Union. Now, thinking uh, in retrospective and reflecting on the context in which the book was written, 2019, so which is when we you know, agreed to, to, to write the book, um, was a very special year. It was very special year, not only because we had the European elections in which there was a very strong upsurge of populist parties in Europe, as well as in, in, in the rest of the world. But Europe was, was a case in point, also because the, the ECB uh, had a, a very um, uh, you know, 
special um, case in which uh, in 2019, 10 out of 25 members of the governing council uh, changed, including the president. And of course, there was a lot of questions and a lot of uncertainty about how would have populism played a role uh, in the context also of this high turnover um, in the um, governing council. Um, now, the um, one fact is that clearly the, the ECB um, legitimacy, which is really one of the keywords in, 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 in this um, analysis we've done, um, is now quite thin. And of course, um, as my colleagues will be you know, happy to, to discuss later, that is, is because the ECB uh, has little input legitimacy uh, at the moment, because it is one of, uh, used to be one of the most independent central bank um, in the world. But also the output legitimacy is, is, is quite weak um, because the ECB has, you know, particularly since uh, 2013, um, missed its um, inflation target. And also there's been a relative decline um, um, all over the world of the relevance of the monetarist orthodoxy in a sense that central banks um, are you know, gradually shifting away from the idea that you know, inflation target can, uh, as a byproduct, create stability in the economy. So that is gradually changing. So the ECB um, is mainly left with a throughput legitimacy, which is really a complex word to say, a procedural um, legitimacy. And these, of course, um, there are ways and scope through which these troop legitimacy can be um, enhanced. Um, so I'll conclude because that um, is about, you know, the, the introduction. But um, one thing um, that we sort of want to, you know, throw at, at, the, uh, at the audience uh, um, uh, is that, um, is for sake of creating a discussion, is that clearly, you know, in the short term, uh, there will be a very strong need for the European Central Bank to uh, keep its role of a guardian of monetary and financial stability. But there, there have been um, a new, renewed sets of questions that have been uh, raised uh, with COVID and that were raised already before COVID, but because cer certainly COVID-19 has um, reinvigorated, if you like. So one of them being the fact that you know, there is a very strong evidence that trust in uh, institutions uh, as well as uh, economic growth and prosperity tend to go hand in hand. And now with Europe stuck in a, in a low inflation, low growth environment with, with a lot of challenges on you know, long-term um, sustainability as well as um, investment, uh, clearly that uh, could leave some fertile grounds to populist forces uh, later on. Um, the main problem being that the ECB is not uh, legitimized um, um, at the moment, in a sense, that those tensions that we have highlighted in the book, um, and um, I'm sure we will discuss, are not completely resolved. But really, in the long term, there should be um, a deeper reflection about uh, what the right policy mix will look like, and if you know a monetary and fiscal policy mix will be what awaits us in the future, then that should be reconsidered um, in the light of the uh, ECB independence in a sense that, of course, clearly ECB independence cannot uh, be you know, fully <clears throat> achieved uh, if we accept the idea that monetary and fiscal policy will become even more complementary. Um, so I'll close here and um, yeah, be happy to follow up on that, those arguments. 
Thank you very much, Corrado. Um, I think that gave us a good overview of what the book is about. And I would now like to ask Ivald Novotny what his response and reaction as an ex-central banker is to this. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. First, I want to congratulate the authors for this uh, very interesting and innovative uh, book. But of course, given the short time, I will concentrate on some issues where I uh, have a rather perhaps critical uh, view. Uh, and uh, I will do this uh, based on my experiences as a central bank. Uh, the first uh, point is, um, I think what's, uh, what makes a lot of <clears throat> sense is that this book is, uh, has very clearly analyzed that there is a trade-off uh, for the far, uh, between uh, the far-reaching uh, uh, independence of the European Central Bank and substantial accountability for instance, accountability towards the European Parliament. And in fact, uh, the ECB is the most independent central bank of the world because uh, independence of central banks is uh, based on specific laws. And if this is a national law, it can change to the national parliament. And we have seen such a discussion, for instance, in the US and to a certain extent also in other countries. Whereas the independence of the ECB is based on the European treaties. And we all know that uh, de facto these treaties never can be changed against the will of the ECB with regard to independence. Which means also that therefore is a rather strong position of the ECB also towards the parliament. But uh, of course, uh, in this relationship, it makes sense uh, that uh, there is uh, inf a flow of information between uh, both uh, sides. And in this book, it is uh, specifically discussed with regard to the role of the monetary dialogue with ECON, with the Economic and uh, Political uh, Committee of the European Parliament. Uh, in my view, I think there are some additional uh, aspects uh, that uh, perhaps for the interaction between central bank and parliament are uh, even more uh, important. The first is very simple. Uh, the European Parliament has the power to have hearings of candidates for the executive board of the ECB and then to have a vote. This is something close uh, in the line of the, of the US, but as far as I know, no, no national European pa Parliament has this right to have hearings with uh, uh, perspective, prospective uh, members of the executive uh, board and of uh, the prospective governor. And the European Parliament did indeed use this instrument uh, of hearings and votes, but it did not uh, use this very much with regard to general monetary politics. Uh, it uh, used it to other kinds of fields of politics, especially with gender policy. So we had, uh, and this is true, women are dramatically underrepresented uh, in European monetary policy. And so when Yves Mersch, uh, at this time the governor of the Luxembourg uh, Central Bank, had been nominated uh, for EU, for the, uh, by, the, by the EU Council uh, as a member of the EU Executive Board, the European Parliament delayed this uh, agreement uh, asking for a woman to be a candidate. At the end of the day, 
if Mersch uh, got his job, but uh, the message was uh, understood by the European Council. So this was a case where the parliament reacted and had uh, substantial power on a, a very important point, because we all know a, lot, a big part of politics is about personnel. And so this is where they were really influential. The second point is that uh, uh, parliamentary com uh, committees have a substantial role in the legislative process of the, EC of the EU and uh, therefore also especially in the field of supervision. And I think one should not forget, and perhaps in this uh, book it is not uh, fully adequately seen, that today the aspects of banking supervision is for the European for Central Bank more or less of the same importance as aspects of monetary policy. In fact, uh, I would say perhaps even more of our time was used for members, for matters of uh, uh, banking supervision. And if a governor gets into political problems, it is mainly because of reasons of banking supervision. As we had in the Netherlands, we had it in Slo Slovenia, to a certain extent also uh, in the UK. Third point, which I want to mention, is the Court of Auditors as an instrument of uh, the European Parliament. And there is an ongoing uh, kind of turf war uh, between the Court of Auditors and the European uh, and the ECB. What are the real uh, <coughs> fields where the, where the Court of Auditors may become uh, active? Uh, I myself, I had been the chairman of the audit committee of the ECB. Uh, so I know this is an ongoing discussion, but everybody is, uh, is aware of course, that, uh, uh, let's say, a, a negative uh, report from the Court of Auditors may have a massive negative uh, effect on public reputation. I do have some problems uh, with what is uh, called in this book the perceptual nature of ECB legitimacy and accountability. Uh, that uh, uh, applies not only to the elected representatives, but as it is said in this book, I quote, to the citizens themselves. And here we have, uh, of course, not only the problem who are these uh, citizens, uh, with, but with regard to monetary policy, we have to be aware that we have in Europe deep, systemic and historically rooted differences between, roughly speaking, North and South with regard to the uh, to monetary policy. Uh, Marcus Brunemeyer, Harold James and Jean-Pierre Landau have shown this in a very interesting book, The Euro and the Battle of Ideas. And uh, so I cannot go into details about this, but I think for our discussion, uh, one has to be aware that these fundamentally different monetary policy views makes it necessary to have difficult bargaining procedures. And in contrast to the authors of the book, I see the EU Council in a better place for bargaining procedures as compared to the EU Parliament. Because if there is a strong, if there are strong fundamental differences 
among different countries, issues should not be decided by simple parliamentary majority voting, but there have to be certain safeguards for minority positions. Otherwise, these uh, minorities will have an increasing incentive to reduce the loyalty to the community. And the voting procedures of the EU Council give minority positions a clearly stronger role than the voting procedures of the EU Parliament. And this is of special relevance if the minority state could be Germany. And in fact, there is always a latent fear in Germany to be outvoted by, as they call it, the South. Uh, this fear also reflects to the ECB, where uh, in the general governing council, each member state has one vote, and it's only by de facto the big economies have another member as part of the executive, uh, executive group. So I think one has to be aware that this is something that is uh, quite substantial. But of course, these basic differences between North and South are not necessarily static. And there may be tendencies uh, of a better mutual understanding and cooperation as we have seen just recently. But if one follows the question, and this has been done just before, uh, how popular is the ECB? Uh, one uh, has to be aware that the ECB may be unpopular for exactly the opposite reasons in the North and in the South. And that uh, populist parties exploit exactly opposite notions in the North and the South and that uh, issues, let's say, of the democratic deficits that are, of course, relevant, uh, may not play such as, uh, may play a smaller role than this more fundamental point. Uh, still, of course, it makes sense to fight against uh, these different forms of uh, populism. And I fully agree with the proposals of the authors to follow uh, some kind of, let's say, civil society form. And in fact, this is what the ECB is just uh, doing is engaged in a process uh, called ECB listens, similar to what the Fed has been uh, doing uh, before. Uh, and uh, I think this is makes sense, but one has to be uh, quite aware it will be a hard way for the ECB to become such a, let's say, national monument as the Deutsche Bundesbank has been and is still in Germany. The French Prime Minister Mitterrand once uh, uh, remarked, not all Germans believe in God, but all Germans believe in the Bundesbank. But this has been the case because the Bundesbank cared exactly about the big trauma, the big German trauma of high inflation. And in fact, as some recent studies show, they were also feeding this trauma. So you may get legitimacy by playing the fears and traumas of your constituency, but this is of course a very dangerous way uh, for a central bank. 
Uh, last point of my remarks refers to the conclusions. So what are the political and economic challenges ahead? Uh, I think this, this has a very interesting uh, discussion, for instance, on issues of monetary fiscal coordination, benefits and costs of EMU membership, very important analysis studying uh, what the ECB can do and what it uh, cannot do. But uh, in general, there is a rather pessimistic perspective char characterized, for instance, uh, by the sentence, and here I quote again, uh, the current approach to crisis cannot be sustainable. In fact, with the wisdom of uh, today, and Corrado has uh, mentioned this, I consider this last chapter perhaps a bit too pessimistic. Just this year, the ECB has been able to create a vast support program, part of it in the form of grants. Uh, its most important point is that for the first time, we have an agreement uh, on common bonds. And this, of course, this has not been a kind of Hamiltonian uh, event in the real sense, but nevertheless, it's a, it's a step that would not have been feasible a year ago. And this may be a hint that it may need uh, some big external shocks, crisis developments, uh, to achieve institutional progress in Europe, and also to get far-reaching popular support for it. And this, uh, by the way, is no unique European experience. In many cases, external shocks, unfortunately, in many cases, wars, uh, brought about major institutional uh, changes. But one must not forget that the ECB and the EU as such are, historically speaking, relatively young institutions. And so, so that there is still a long journey uh, to go for these institutions. So uh, speaking in an LSE uh, context, I rather foresee, uh, if I may say so, Popperian uh, approach of trial and error. Uh, the euro as such clearly is irreversible. And I think uh, a book uh, uh, like the one we are discussing now is quite a helpful orientation for this trial and error process. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Nobotny. Um, that was an excellent overview that raised a few questions for the, author, for the authors that I now take up, like the European Parliament may be in certain respects more powerful than the book has it. There are generally more checks and balances on the ECB than you seem to concede. Uh, there is a role for the European Council rather than the Parliament to have fundamental debates about the battle of ideas around central banks. Um, and we should be a bit more optimistic, even though it comes in this dismal form of we always need a big crisis uh, to uh, move forward with popular support instead of calm debate and deliberation. But progress is made and it is not clear that the current approach is so, uh, you know, unmovable. 
Would anybody like immediately to respond to some of this? Or should I ask you perhaps more specific questions that relate to your contribution to the book? I do not see anybody to immediately raise their hand. Or is this Corrado? Did you want to respond? We can't. I mean, um, I just, well. Um, of course, it was very useful to to have um, that discussion and 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 really the um, insight from uh, Professor Notmany uh, on um, you know, his experience. Uh, that was really useful. I think um, I'm not going to you know, comment on the um, on the role of the sort of Parliament and the Council because, of course, my colleagues <coughs> Sebastian and Claudia are much better positioned than I am. But I think on the pessimistic look. Um, um, I, um, the only thing that I could say is that um, we thought it was quite interesting, um, for instance, how um, even more um, during the first early stages of COVID-19, there was a tendency um, where national governments seemed to be ready to mutualize risk through the balance sheet of DCB. And that happened almost overnight in the sense that from Lagarde position of, we're not here to close spread, they had to essentially scramble together the pandemic program. And that really happened um, quickly if one puts that in perspective of how long it took Draghi to agree uh, on the uh, OMT. So we um, certainly agree on the fact that uh, you know, a lot has happened against all the odds. Uh, but um, you know, it's 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 clear that uh, the 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 crisis, as as Professor Notfany said, opens and raises even more questions. And you know the the, the the sort of EMU approach of sort of regenerating from its ashes is true once again. So um, yeah, that, that's all I wanted to say. Thank you, Corrado. Then let me ask Sebastian um, on this very important question that uh, Corrado talked about, namely the only primarily procedural legitimacy that the ECB seems to enjoy at the moment. There was once a time when it perhaps also had legitimacy through good results in terms of price stability and so on. Now, what can be done about that? If you simply, would you have to change the way governors are nominated and all that? Do you think this, this will help? Or do we just have to hope that the output legitimacy uh, in terms of financial stability and all that will improve. Sebastian. Yeah, thanks very much for the question, Valtraud. And thanks also, first of all, uh, from my side for hosting the event and bringing this, this book back to where it all started, in a sense, namely the, the LSE European Institute. Uh, and thanks also so much for the very insightful comments. Um, on your question, uh, I mean, I guess it implies to some extent is the current procedural legitimacy sufficient um, and I would struggle to see that and then we can discuss whether one can one, one can get towards a more uh, sufficient degree of legitimacy but we have to start somewhere and we are to some extent I would argue for the time being condemned to this procedural notion Mark Dawson calls it the false promise of procedural uh, legitimacy, but we have to we have to start somewhere. The reason I would struggle to see it as sufficient, and I think that this is um, becoming more and more accepted, is is actually two reasons, and they are to some extent related. I mean, on the one hand, the existing 
procedural legitimacy channels. What we mean by that is mostly accountability to the European Parliament, as was also picked up in the comment by Professor Novotny. They are, they, they are themselves already in need of improvement. And there's a whole range of reform proposals, some of which we pick up in the book, uh, creating a dedicated subcommittee, changing some, some, some things about the format and procedures, which would arguably in themselves improve the quality of accountability. Now, that's not sufficient. Even if we did that, uh, it's probably fair to say that few, if I may, people would take notice. Um, so other ways have to be found to, to, to reach out to this very admittedly and, and agreed uh, diverse um, set of European citizens or, and or at least to their representatives in civil society. That's indeed happening now, starting this week, the day after tomorrow, with the ECB Listens events, very timely. But I think very much will depend on, um, to answer your question, whether there is some actual, if you will, input from this exercise or not. And I would insist a bit on, on that, that perceptions matter here. And I agree that they might be very worried, buried, but this is very much an attempt, and I think in a recognition uh, to remedy perceptions of a lack of input legitimacy. So in short, short answer would be current procedures are, are not sufficient. That's increasingly recognized, but also maybe the first steps are being taken to, to remedy that. So that remains to be seen, but we have arguably to start from the procedures. Um, that's a bit one of our takeaways here. Thank you, Sebastian. Mara, may I bring you in? Um, how you were interested in this, in, or your contribution was particular about the rise of Eurosceptic parties. How has their rise across the continent affected the, ECB, the EU's political capital, of which obviously the ECB is part? So now, just to say thank you to um, thank you Vartrad and thank you to also to the LSC for giving us the chance to present the book today. And to answer your question, I would like to start with the last European election and then the Eurobarometer result, which measure the confidence in the ECB. And um, so is a, a survey that perhaps is a mostly link also of what uh, Professor Nautney said about the confidence of the, on the ECB, on the north and the south of Europe. So the starting point is the last European election in uh, 2019, uh, which saw a big rise in, for Eurosceptic in the new parliament. So if you look at the 19 countries of the Euro area, the Eurosceptic collect uh, 134 uh, seats. That means um, an increase of 104 on the previous parliament. And as you can imagine, the, this result set an alarm bells ringing in Brussels. So we, we had the election of a new parliament, a new presidency and commission as well. But at the same time, there were also big changes in the European Central Bank, where 10 out of 25 members of the governing council are to be changed. And of course, there was the appointment of the new ECB president, all these events at the time of a mounting concern about populism. So we were in the middle of a perfect storm. And the question was, could the rise of populist party uh, uh, have an impact on these appointments? 
And uh, mm, it was a crucial question, considering that the head of each national central bank is a member of uh, ECB uh, governing council responsible for the rates and other monetary instruments. So who appoints national central bank presidents and whether they are free from political interference is a question which raises concern about central bank independence itself. So let's remember that several anti-establishment parties were putting pressure on the ECB and on Euro as part of their called uh, exit strategies. We had in France uh, Marie Le Pen's uh, far-right party Rassemblement National, uh, in Italy the populist uh, Liga Nord e Cinque Stelle, and in Germany, Alternative for Deutschland. So this brings us to the, the next topic, how popular the ECB has been. Well, with the barometer data, we measure how the perception of the ECB has changed. And uh, so to answer that, we analyze the level of confidence in the ECB and the European Commission in both the core and periphery countries, and for the euro area and before and after the sovereign crisis. So um, the, the data show us uh, that before the crisis, the trust in the ECB was at the same level in the core and the periphery countries. But uh, during the crisis, the, the trust in the ECB dropped in both areas. So that, that was perhaps uh, to be expected in periphery countries such as Greece, Italy, Spain and Portugal, which suffered the most during the crisis. However, what we saw was a drop in the popularity of the ECB also in the car countries like Germany, Austria and a bit less in France, Belgium and the Netherlands too. So if we compare that with the European institutions, the drop in confidence in the ECB is larger than the fall in support in the um, European institution. But, and this is perhaps surprising, the fall was particularly sharp in the core countries. So how we can explain that? Well, the drop in support in periphery areas is easier to explain. Countries that receive financial help during the crisis, like Greece and Spain, Basically, they lost control uh, of national budget. Many decisions were taken externally by the IMF, the ECB, and the European Commission, or the so-called Troika. And that marginalized the national policy making and reduced the role of national parties. And that's matter because claims of an erosion of a national... Ma, could you come to your question why it is more in the core countries? And yes, exactly. I just, I just, uh, um, I just come up, and, uh, and for the for the core country, the ECB program of buying sovereign bonds in the secondary market helped to push the interest rate into the negative in countries like uh, Germany and North Europe. So the negative impact of national, on national saving and pension funds was also highly unpopular. And it must be remembered that the former German finance minister, Wolfgang Schäuble, accused the head of ECB, Mario Draghi, for contributing to the rise of the German far-right party alternative for Deutschland. 
So I'm going to conclude my, by saying that even for an independent policy-making institution such, that, such as the ECB, which is less dependent on popular support like government, the loss of confidence may invite criticism, putting more pressure for populist forces. So the question is whether a long-lasting distrust in the central bank, bank puts at risk the independent monetary policy making that many in Europe value so highly. Thank you, enjoy the book. Thank you, Maha. Claudia, can I then bring these two things together? As Maha just told us, you know, EU citizens' uh, distrust in the ECB fuels populism and criticism of EU elites more generally, but in particular the monetary policy elites. Um, is it then enough to install the liberation and consultation mechanisms in the EU, starting from this procedural legitimacy that Sebastian has talked about? If not, as I expect, having read your book, how can and should the EU's fiscal governance be democratized? Uh, okay, so I see I got the easiest question um, of all of the possible questions. I mean, there is obviously no easy answer to this. It's a very complicated setting, and, and it might be astonishing, but I'm, I, I absolutely support um, Ewald Nowotny's argument. And I really found this, this hint at the history of ideas behind the euro um, very um, convincing, especially as German. I mean, I speak here as an EU scholar, as a scholar in democracy research, and as a German. Um, and I'm going to make a claim for a breach of austerity and for a breach of a strong stability policy. And uh, I mean, it's probably not a problem if I do it at the LSE, but I can assure you that it's a problem when you do this in a German context. So the Germans uh, would go bashing you when you say we need to question some of the fundamental ideas that Germany had in constructing the euro. And, and, and this uh, would be my argument, because obviously... I'm not at all against deliberation. Deliberation is a very good instrument. It's very helpful, but we must not confuse it with input legitimacy. Input legitimacy is linked to elections. Input legitimacy is linked to certain parliamentary principles, as long as we are in a representative parliamentary system. Um, and the ECB doesn't have this. And um, it's my conviction that the ECB should not have it because we are never going to elect a central bank governor's board. That's a contradiction in itself, if you ask me. So we are talking about um, what Paul Tucker termed unelected power and the question of which powers do we want to delegate to bodies such as independent central banks from our directly legitimated bodies. Um, so everything that we can do about deliberation, and I think it's a very good initiative that also Christine Lagarde wants to be closer to the citizens, will only remedy throughput legitimacy and will only remedy the public part of visibility of a body that will always stay indirectly legitimated. So we have a problem regarding input legitimacy and also output legitimacy, and it's my conviction that this needs to be brought back where it belongs. Now, it's either the national parliaments and the national legislatives that must be included. And, but we all know how problematic this is because we have a, a, an EU monetary authority. So um, the solution that, that I have sort of ended with, and I admit that it's much easier on the conceptual and theoretical level than on the practical level, is that there must be a kind of input legitimated counterpart 
for a democratic governance um, of this economic or political economic part, a kind of you know democratic counterpart to um, what what the ECB does, and that cannot be the European Parliament in my conviction. Because the European Parliament, as you all know, consists of countries that are non-Euro countries. So I am an adherent of this proposal of a Euro Chamber, um, which could be one sort of part of the European Parliament. And that sort of could be, in my view, the way to go. Now, having sketched this, uh, it's maybe the benefit of an academic to say this is sort of the conceptual theoretical way um, to go. I know how tremendously complicated this would be. And um, as I said in the beginning, not least uh, because of the German um, role and the German opposition to this. I, I leave it here for now. Thank you very much, Claudia. That's great. So I would like to give then the last question in this round to Corrado and give also Ewald Nowotny the chance to respond to anything that was just said. Corrado, what are the implications of permanent central bank monetary policy easing, you know, to fight low inflation? Uh, do you think monetary policy alone is enough to achieve its current goals? And what are the, you know, disadvantages for things like uh, pension funds? There's a question in the Q&A. Uh, and, you know, Schäuble's remark, which, which uh, Claudia just reminded us, was clearly about German savers. So how would you deal or should one deal with that? Thank you and thanks for, for the question from, from the audience. <clears throat> uh, so essentially um, um, the uh, situation in which we are currently is that um, the response of the European Central Bank as well as any other central banks has been that of continue, continue to do what they've been doing, uh, which is um, non-conventional, which is, I mean, I think it's even an odd term now to call it non-conventional because perhaps this is the new norm. Um, but I uh, say asset purchase programs um, to, to call it more properly. And so the response of central banks across the sort of Western part of the globe has been that of continuing with the asset purchase programs. And certainly um, there is uh, the impression that um, um, the, that continuation of, of asset purchase programs does have uh, some risks. Um, but at the same time, um, there are also risks concerned with the so premature um, uneasing uh, of monetary mm -hmm. policy because um, you know, there is always a sense that it's never time for tightening. Um, now, um, <clears throat> clearly, uh, one uh, obvious uh, consequence of having so-called, what has been called QE infinity, so quantitative easing um, infinity, so having the central bank to permanently uh, resort to asset purchase uh, programs. And of course, those asset purchase programs, needless to say, are different from standard uh, um, way of injecting liquidity because they, they buy bonds at a long maturity, and that comes the question on, on pension funds. But normally, by buying bonds at, at long maturity, say 10 years, clearly that has implications also for the so risk uh, uh, component in the market. And that has uh, some concerns that have been highlighted. So one of the concerns is, is clearly for the stability uh, of the banking sector. So a couple of days ago, um, Carmen Reynard uh, from the World Bank was, was you know, warning that the next uh, stage perhaps could be um, that of financial instability in the sense that we are really pushing some investors 
um, in search for yields by keeping long-term uh, interest rates too slow. And that, of course, means that you know, investors are, uh, you know, who have a risk appetite clearly will have to adjust their portfolio and uh, their adjustment decisions more and more in the direction of, of um, say, other um, assets. And um, um, now, so the, the, the main risk really to, to have those, these monetary policy continue is that, first of all, these, this set of uh, monetary policy tools are losing power at the margin because uh, we know from the literature, and you know, I, I don't make mystery of being you know, mainly coming from an economic background, but we know from the literature that those programs mainly work through the signaling channel. So by signaling to financial markets that you know, interest rates are going to be loose for long, and clearly markets are no longer you know, surprised or no, no, no longer... So this doesn't represent any longer a new source of information. So markets are used to those. So at the margin, there is evidence that those programs are really losing power. <clears throat> and that is a problem because, you know, then we will have sooner or later to think about where, where do we go next? And uh, there have been discussions also in the context of the monetary policy dialogue of whether um, other non-conventional, say, even more non-conventional measures would be appropriate um, there have been discussion about helicopter money or say, unbounded negative interest rates. So, of course, those are very extreme um, possibilities if one thinks about them now. But certainly there will be a question of what are we going to do next if we keep within the current situation. Now, um, from the point of view of how do we achieve the, um, say, inflation goal. Now, clearly there are both structural factors that hinder um, a return on inflation. Clearly, there are very weak conditions uh, in terms of growth in some countries, and that suggests that clearly demand factors aren't there at the moment that would justify a return on inflation. But also, a very important element that uh, prevents um, the ECB to, to hit the, the, the target would be the presence of uncertainty. So, clearly, uncertainty does not help consumption and investment. And uh, finally, um, you know, COVID was very specific as a shock because clearly it increased precautionary saving, uh, it uh, reduced the demand for investment, and as such, that exerted even more downward pressure on long-term um, interest rates. Uh, so clearly all those factors are factors that are beyond the control of the European Central Bank. But also we have secular factors. Um, uh, Larry Summers has been talking about secular stagnation, so demographics, um, the, the upsurge of China that is even stronger now with uh, post-COVID. So clearly those are factors that go well beyond what is in control of the EMU. Um, um, so definitely there is a dimension that escapes the, the immediate concern of the ECB. So it is obvious that the ECB alone would not be able uh, to, to carry on. I mean, they can certainly, uh, and they did so in the past, um, uh, provide... Um, sort of um, conditions by injecting liquidity through which they gain time. But I don't think uh, those would be um, you know, conditions that would be sustainable much longer because of the financial stability concern. Now, Thank very quickly, touching on pension funds, clearly all this situation of very low interest rates environment, particularly at the longer end of the curve, uh, is not good at all for institutional actors such as pension funds and insurance companies. Um, and um, I think in terms of you know, pensions, uh, one you know, 
should be you know aware of the fact that you know if um, we're talking about defined benefit or defined contribution, probably those things you know things would be slightly different. But whatever the uh, definition would be, uh, definitely those um, those institutional actors would be worse off. Um, and that is for for the reason outlined before. As 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 such, those institutional actors will be you know inclined to take more risk, uh, but also to to um, to, to adjust the, the, the balance sheet also from the point of view of duration. Um, so clearly uh, those could and will have uh, concerns uh, that we will have to address um, if not in one way, in another, which in the other, which will mean through uh, regulation. So I think we have now a very delicate balance in which we want to, of course, spur uh, a recovery and, and sort of uh, a stronger economic growth, but at the same time, we don't want to transform this, this very special situation, this very special shock into now a financial uh, stability concern, because that will be clearly uh, creating even more problem uh, if the banking sector would be involved. Last Thank point you. is that, uh, Marjorie, on. just one second, is that- We are really uh, approaching a bit the, the end yes, of- the, I think the main difference time. now with respect to 2009-2010 is that the banking sector is much better capitalized now. So I think preserving the, the so foundness of the banking sector would be quite crucial at the moment. Thank you. Almost a bit too good, well capitalized and playing in the casinos forever. That's the problem with it, isn't it? Um, Eva Novotny, would you like to respond to any of the things that have been said immediately or? Yeah, perhaps by just uh, following up what has just been discussed. I think one has to distinguish Uh, between, let's say, the, the short-term perspective, short-term in this case, meaning three three years, uh, two years or so. I think for this perspective, it's quite clear there must not be a premature normalization. I think this is uh, broadly agreed. For the longer period, I think that for the ECB, it would make sense uh, then to try to get some kind of normalization. I think that the situation of having negative interest rates is a rather problematic constellation from, with regard to financial, also financial stability perspective. And one has to see uh, this is uh, something specifically for the ECB. We don't have it in the US. Uh, you don't have it in the UK. Uh, in Switzerland, it has totally different reasons because it's about the exchange, uh, the exchange rate. So to get back into, let's say, kind of low but positive territory, I think would, uh, would make a lot of sense. And then, of course, we have the, let's say, the longer perspective. And here, and this was also this, uh, discussed in, in your book, uh, I think one of the really critical aspects uh, will be the, the issue of monetary financing. So what is the connection between uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy? And uh, you see this uh, because markets and many of us expect to have some kind of Japanese situation. That means very long, low inflation, low interest rates, also low growth. This can be covered only if you have monetary financing, as they have in Japan. Uh, the fact that they have it also in the US. Uh, 
and uh, de facto, to a certain extent, we have it in the in the EU. But uh, of course, we ha have these very strict legal limits that uh, we have to uh, to observe. So, and, and I think this this will become one of the of the decisive issues. Uh, I, I myself have just published a, a book a bit on, on this, uh, where this is one of the things I deal with, uh, because I think we will have to find some ways of monetary financing with control, because the, 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 the danger of monetary financing is always, and this is, of course, especially for the German discussion, where there's always this fear of, uh, uh, of inflation, uh, <clears throat> that it might lead uh, to uncontrolled inflation. So you have to find some 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 ways how how to to, to deal with it. For instance, in in Canada, the Canadian uh, central bank law has it in in the law that the central bank buys automatically always twenty percent of a new issue of public bonds, uh, because uh, we have we have this problem, of course, especially for the southern countries that they have uh, uh, extremely high debt problem, problems. So even if they have uh, a kind of budget surplus for quite a long time, uh, primary uh, surplus, it doesn't help them too much. So, uh, and the alternative is of course, that you have some kind of debt restructuring, uh, which would create huge problems for for the Eurozone. The Eurozone could survive also a debt restructuring in some member countries, but still it would create huge problems because one has to be aware, uh, as we have it today, uh, the, for, the, for the financial markets, we have a rather high degree of integration. So that means it would not affect only the banks of this country, but the banks of many other countries. So therefore, I think uh, in, the, in the way of looking at kind of uh, uh, less problematic solutions, this is a discussion that uh, will have to be uh, will get more importance in the in the years to come. Thank you very much. So I would now like to open for questions from the audience, of which there are quite a few in the uh, in the chat. Uh, I take it always by two, and would wish that you answer relatively succinctly, so that we get them all through. There's first a very interesting question by uh, Simon Dikau that I've just, uh, who is a researcher at the LSE's Grantham Institute, you know, that's envi on environmental uh, change. And he said, he notes that uh, Christine Lagarde and, and Isabel Schnabel are fully behind the, the climate change uh, uh, goals of the EU by reaching climate neutrality by 2050. Uh, isn't that interesting? And it is a question for Sebastian, that their open response to addressing climate change under their primary and potentially secondary mandate, financial uh, stability, that this is an effort to ensure the ECB's legitimacy in face of the central role this topic is playing in the EU. So have lessons for working on legitimacy been learned is his question. Then I have a question from, um, I this, this chat constantly moves and I look, Susanna Pallion, she's an LSE student, third year BSc mathematics with economics. She's speaking of the role of big crisis in revolutionizing the institutions. Um, 
So, Claudia, perhaps you could take that. We can notice greater coordination of fiscal and monetary policies throughout in the pandemic in the US, for example. And she's wondering, do you see a role of the COVID crisis in the EU moving towards such coordination, perhaps even a fiscal union? Could we take these two questions, please, Sebastian and then Claudia? Yes, thank you. Excellent questions. And I've also been following with one eye uh, the, the, the Q&A. So thanks, everyone, for those uh, and keep, keep them coming. Uh, there was exactly there was more than one climate change related question and they're very well taken. And the short answer would be yes, I would argue that uh, it does have a, a sort of legitimacy enhancing effect. And that in fact, that might even well be the intention for both President Lagarde and also Isabel Schnabel to some extent be pushing on this because it is arguably a fairly also popular and uh, policy or popular um, route to go down to. Now, of course, ask two people and you will get three opinions and Professor Novotny perfectly well argued that um, uh, views on many issues are divided and the ECB often finds itself caught in the middle and will get attacked from either side. Fortunately, or for better or worse, uh, or probably for better, um, the climate change issue is ever broadly, ever more broadly accepted as a very pressing concern that no powerful institution can disentangle itself from. You will have the dissenters um, from Germany perhaps or elsewhere that would argue that it's not the central bank's role to get very involved with this, but I think they will remain the, the minority and it's, it is at the end of the day uh, to be embraced from this, I think, legitimacy perspective that these calls, uh, Fridays for Future, etc., are being also heard and reflected and it's simply the issue of the century and, and beyond to be taken into account. So thanks for those questions and short answer, yes. There was also a question of Max Dirk, indeed, uh, EI alumni from Switzerland. Um, uh, Claudia, you are muted. Yeah, sorry. Um, so the short answer is also yes. Um, I think there is a tendency that uh, the COVID crisis will move the European Union towards a fiscal union. Um, but that is, uh, in a sense, um, let me say, a, a, a guess supported by the facts, in a sense. The fact that we now saw a rescue package appearing, um, concluded, that um, doesn't have the same austerity conditions as did the financial help in the financial crisis. And the fact also, and I weigh this more importantly, that there was a kind of awareness that if the European Union now does not, uh, it's a bit outdated maybe the expression, but stand together, um, it's going to be in major trouble. So this is how I would read uh, the result of, of the summit um, in summer. Um, now, when we look at uh, what are the real problems in getting this rescue package through, we see a European Parliament that is not satisfied with the outcome in certain respects. We see other countries that have their interests. So I would say this consensus is probably still fragile that we have seen here. So I have the impression that people, it's a bit like with climate change, actually. So everybody understood the message, but it's very difficult to step back from your own interests and to follow 
um, the message and to learn uh, from, from what is there to be learned from. Um, now, I really jump back very long into the history of ideas of European integration, but this is how it all started. It all started because the French and the Germans joined forces. And it is because the French and the Germans overcame um, a, a decades-long um, state of enemyship. So I think we need a, a more profound change of mentality to, to get this um, done. But I think um, there are positive signs. And on the other hand, I think if this rescue package doesn't come through and if there is not, not mutual support following this COVID crisis, um, then the trouble will be even bigger with all the dynamics that we have been um, sketching in the book. And then there's one last point that I would like to mention. Um, I have been quite surprised that a lot of thinkers and practitioners in the banking sector, in, in, in the sector of uh, financial institutions and financial enterprises have been putting forward issues of democracy in the last times. So it's not the usual suspects on the political liberal left um, that argue against the dangers of populism in Europe. It's quite often um, um, financial institutions. I recently saw a comment um, by um, by a, the CEO of, um, how is it called, this institution that Friedrich Merz, um, Brock, the name is getting lost. Um, Friedrich Merz is on the board of a financial, of an invest, BlackRock. BlackRock. Um, so I, I realized, especially in Frankfurt, which is the city where I live, a fear of increasing social inequality and what it, what it does to democracy. And I realized a sense of that this may endanger also a liberal economy as we know it. So I know that this is independent from what politics thinks in the moment, but I think this is going to be very influential. So for me, these are two factors uh, that would speak in favor of, um, of uh, moving towards fiscal union. Um, the sense that I think there is at least an increased understanding on the level of the EU governments. And I would say it's backed by the understanding that democracy is a precious good to have, which does not come from politics, but which comes from, from um, financial actors. Thank you, Claudia. Um, a question that I would perhaps uh, put to um, Corrado, and then I have one for Mara. Corrado, uh, the, uh, Alan Evans, no, John Mason takes up a question, and I think this is also by Alan Evans. So John Mason from UCL, University College of London, basically says, it seems that for a long time, the big financial sector uh, and its presence uh, submerged somehow the whole question of accountability of the central bank that stabilizes that system into something that we have to take just technocratically. Um, by whom, to whom should uh, a central bank be accountable and who should even determine what accountability mechanisms we have? And then I have a question for Mara that is from uh, Federico uh, Ferrara, who is a research officer effect at, uh, in a project that I uh, I am the principal investigator at the European Institute. Uh, he says an interesting policy change of the ECB over the past decade has been the increasing effort to communicate directly to the public, you know, we listen and so on. This was mostly aimed at filling the legitimacy gap generated by the loss of citizens' trust and political backlash against the bank about which you talked as well. Do you think this is a positive development? that they now respond to this? 
And in the context of the ECB's strategy review, would you advise the ECB to proceed further in this direction, for example, by having a greater presence on television and social media? So, uh, Corrado, first on this accountability question. Yes, thank you, Walter, and thanks for the question. So, obviously, <clears throat> I'm not sure I'm, I'm in the best pos person position to, to answer this uh, question on accountability, but what I can say uh, without sort of you know, squashing too much what, what is my background and sort of um, is that certainly um, when we look at the uh, history of the creation of the EMU, um, the um, EMU was founded on the idea essentially that, um, you know, an independent central bank and, um, you know, a set of fiscal rules together with self-regulating uh, financial markets would have done the job. Um, now, uh, we, we learned in 2010 that, um, so this doesn't happen. Clearly, what was sort of the you know, no bailout rule was essentially, um, you know, fictionally uh, deemed uh, um, non-credible in the sense that if one looks at, um, you know, bond uh, rate uh, premia uh, of Greece versus Germany prior to 2010, they were almost inexistent and that allowed everyone to essentially borrow at the same rate, even though fundamentals were different. And um, so clearly uh, there was a sharp realization uh, from financial markets and uh, policymakers that uh, A, financial markets are not self-regulating. And that of course prompted um, uh, you know, a whole provision of regulation, both at the micro and macro prudential level, um, not only in Europe, but also with Basel, uh, but uh, in Europe specifically, I mean, there was a lack of financial architecture. So there was a creation of the European system risk board and the um, you know, three uh, ESA's uh, agencies that were transformed from the three level three loan policy uh, uh, existing ones. And clearly uh, that realization uh, uh, created a new equilibrium uh, where um, all of a sudden financial stability became uh, much and ever, uh, ever so important in Europe. So um, I think that is, is, um, tells us a long uh, story because, of course, that, um, you know, the, the need to, to, to react to, to those increased challenges as well as the you know, increased uh, integration of, of finance, um, which is probably one of the biggest differences if one compares the, you know, the current crisis with the you know, historical precedent, precedent of the great Depression. So clearly, the Great Recession had the disadvantage that financial markets created and, and were even uh, more um, interlinked than ever. And a lot of the volatility that we took out of the real cycle. So we have proceeding to the Great uh, Recession, we had this period dubbed the Great Moderation. But in fact, there was an illusion because all the volatility was essentially outsourced to the financial cycle, to the financial se sector. So in real terms, we had very little volatility, but we, we transport, we, we move, we, tr we transfer that to the financial sector. So I think um, that you know, clearly uh, says a lot about how and why the ECB had to be put, for instance, uh, in the ESRB, uh, why a lot of new institutions had to be created. But of course that created a lot of uh, institutional and, and sort of democratic uh, problems. Um, but that, as far as I could answer, because I would not be the best person on the panel to answer what you know how we can determine um, um, sort of legitimacy of the ECB. But I think from the economic viewpoint, certainly a lot has changed, and um, we should 
um, now reconcile this, this, you know, the new world in which we are living, in which, you know, clearly financial markets do represent a strong reality uh, uh, with the architecture of the new without uh, creating uh, sort of um, voids that, of course, leave, um, you know, democratic deficits and gaps, which, of course, represent a breach to sort of um, centripetal, uh, centrifugal forces, sorry. Thank you. Uh, Mara, you're muted. Yeah. <clears throat> Thank you for the question. And I have to say that the, the, the problem of communication of the European Central Bank has been a problem since the foundation of, of, the, of, the, of the institutions. And also, when we think in the change from uh, Mr. Trichet, for the president uh, of the ECB, Mr. Trichet, and Mario Draghi, one of the main uh, um, changes was exactly on the communication. Uh, so uh, this is... Is, this is a, a subject that was mostly focused on the ECB. But uh, we have to consider um, another thing, that ECB has a, a big impact on financial markets. When they're they talking where we, um, on press conference, about, on press release, on other um, media, and uh, so we have considered the impact that the, the, um, the ECB has on financial market. And we have two examples. The most powerful word that we consider um, uh, for, the, uh, for the European Central Bank, the famous whatever it takes, uh, whatever it takes, um, uh, that Mario Draghi said, uh, just to, to prevent the, the collapse of the euro. And the, the result of what was exactly uh, what was expected. So the market reacted in a very huge um, uh, uh, force. And the other example is, quite, is rec recently, the last 18 March, from uh, the President Lagarde, when she said, uh, we are not here to close the spread. And that's that. So this was um, read by the financial market like we, uh, the ECB was not there for sustain the the country that have a a, a big gap between uh, the, the the interest rate uh, basically the uh, the southern European countries. So yes, if from one side is important. The ECB has a, a, a direct relation also with the um, with the citizens, but we have to consider that is not a political um, institution. So they have a big impact on financial market, and this is has to be uh, considered. So not miscommunicating would be a good start as well. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I agree. Okay, I didn't. Because I don't see any questions, although I take one up by Alan Evans, but from a slightly different angle, because we just talked about accountability. And this is, what can we learn from that supposedly complete uh, fiscal and monetary union US? So there was earlier this question, you know, very coordinated. Now, at the moment, uh, any fiscal stimulus is stuck in the Congress, because obviously Republicans and, and Democrats cannot agree on any fiscal stimulus package at this stage in the electoral cycle. That reminds you of under President Bush, lame duck, crisis was high, 
and they could not pass uh, a fiscal stimulus program through Congress. One had to wait for Obama to come in. So there's also a problem when the center has the budget. If the center then can't pass it, nothing happens. And the other is what Alan Evans mentions. You know, the, the president of the United States at present really challenges the independence of the Federal Reserve. So should we, in a way, say this is what democratization means, uh, that parliaments can go into a standoff over fiscal policy, while in the EU, in the end, the member states could always go forward if they liked to. Uh, and should there be an authority, perhaps an elected one, that could actually say to the ECB, listen, uh, our priority at the moment is to stimulate, and that's what you do. Who would like to take this up? Well, perhaps, uh, if I may, yes, <laughs> volunteer from uh, uh, <laughs> the central point of view. I think one has to see what is the reason for giving uh, independence to central banks. And uh, the reason is, uh, let's say, this kind of public choice argument that uh, you have to have an institution that has a longer term view than you can have in political in the political arena, where, of course, you have this uh, uh, period of elections and therefore, uh, let's say, vote-maximizing <clears throat> vote politicians uh, might have uh, a too short period for certain long-term perspectives like like price stability, and uh, it is this is kind of, of similar uh, with uh, the idea of, of of having independent judges. The question is, of course, for the judges, you have a very clear they they cannot <laughs> perhaps the the U.S. judges may, but usually in the in the continental the continental tradition, uh, they cannot create the law. Uh, they have just to follow a law that is uh, given. Uh, so this is, this is of course, the, the problem for central banks. What is the mandate and how close is, is the mandate? And here I think we have in the, and this is what I wanted to, uh, to mention, uh, in the European Monetary Union, we have, of course, the, the problem that there are different, basically different views with regard to the mandate, let's say, between North and South. Uh, it is a bit mellowing now. So I think there is a certain uh, coming together. But basically, uh, uh, one must not forget, uh, when the ECB was created, it, it, it meant a huge step for the German public. And so the, 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 the promise was the ECB will be a clone of the Deutsche Bundesbank. And so that is, uh, uh, and and of course it has developed in a different way, and it had to develop in a different way. But this is still, I think, the uh, the, the issue. One issue again with the independence is the matter: independent from whom? Uh, we always are speaking about independent from politics. But this is what has been just mentioned. Uh, for the central banks, of course, the, the basic uh, field of uh, contact are the markets. And Mario Draghi was a master in, in dealing with the markets. Uh, but uh, this is, again, a, a problem because to what extent do you, uh, are you independent from markets? Or to what extent do you follow market expectations? Uh, and these may also be short-term expectations and not long-term. 
And I think basically, I think for the ECB, this, in my view at least, uh, there has been a certain problem that I think, especially Mario Draghi, was a very clever uh, president. But in my view, he was very much prone uh, to follow the market. And, uh, and uh, perhaps uh, to an extent that was not always, uh, at least in my view, uh, necessary in that way. And there we have now an interesting development with the Fed. The Fed has this campaign, what's called the Fed Listens, where they also have meetings with, uh, let's say, uh, town hall meetings. And meetings where there are, for instance, uh, trade unions on board and uh, from uh, small and medium enterprises. And uh, we have had at the ECB, we had regular meetings with the biggest European banks, with the biggest financial institutions. We never had meetings, for instance, with uh, the European trade unions. Of course, the problem is that we have very different trade union organizations in different member countries. We have no comparable uh, representation for small and medium enterprises. But I think this is the challenge that we really have to, uh, uh, to overcome, how to get in contact with uh, these uh, issues. And for instance, uh, one result of this, the Fed listens, was that the Fed now is, uh, is stronger with regard to the goal of full employment. Because uh, obviously in these discussions, it was they they they, they saw what <laughs> some suspected anyhow that in really the the labor market is in a much worse condition than had been thought before. So I think this uh, it's always the question independent from whom, and this is a room to to evolve. And so what you also say, communication could also be along the corporatist ideas of the stakeholders, big stakeholders and representatives of economic interests from trade unions to small and medium enterprises to non-financial business should be in a communication with the ECB to respond also to Federico's question. Is there anything else you would like to add to this, this question just now? Is the US Is the US, so to speak, that example of how it would like, look like under certain constellations, if we completed this union in the nation-state image? Hmm? Claudia. You see, I'm raising my hand. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are those famous articles by Barry Eichengreen, um, who has been discussing uh, the lessons we have to take from the US um, for the European Union. And... Uh, as you know, I'm not the economist, but I'm the political scientist. Um, and I would again say, in my view, yes and no. Because we know that the economic disparities <laughs> in the economic US economic are <laughs> very big. So, sorry? Yeah, I know. But I mean, it, it's a, uh, it, it has the political background. But the US is a different um, political institution than the European Union is. It has these federal states and it doesn't have the national states. So I doubt that it would work in the way, or it could work in the way it worked in the US. So what we maybe could do, okay, let's say it's a political economy answer, yeah, with an emphasis on the political, is to take the economic lessons from the EU and to try to translate them into the European Union's political framework. 
That, in a sense, would be my argument. We should not think, and we must not think, in my view, that we can import this one by one. Just say, let's do as in the US, because the framework and the, the framework conditions um, will be different. Well, then let me all thank you very much. I think this is a good point to end because it's one of these big questions that we will follow up. I guess you will all agree with me that we should thank Ewald Nowotny, this political economist on the ECB uh, governing board, which we very, who we very much miss. Um, I thank all the panelists and the, the audience for, for being here. Um, We, uh, we uh, hope that you come back to one of these events uh, soon. Uh, thank you all for taking part and um, goodbye. <laughs>